Well, I want us to go back to Revelation chapter 2 today. If you haven't been with us the last few weeks, we've been on a series, Letters to the American Church. These are actually seven letters written to the church in Asia Minor 2,000 years ago. But the messages pertain equally to us in our day. So we're taking time with each one. And today we're going to look at the letter Jesus delivered through John to the church in Thyatira. Look in verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. So he has real words of praise for them. There was much good in this church. Nevertheless, Jesus says, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. Jezebel wasn't her real name. That's a name describing the sort of person she was. Jezebel being a pagan uh, uh, queen in the northern kingdom in the days of Elijah, one who sought to turn Israel away from the Lord. And here's this prophet in the church speaking supposedly for God, and Jesus says, this is no prophet. This is Jezebel once again. And so he says to the church, the problem I have with you is that you're tolerating this false prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. As you know from the past weeks, this is all part of pagan worship in this part of the world at that time. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer to suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead, her children here being her disciples, not her actual physical children. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, there's a lot of similarities this letter with the letter to the church at Pergamum that we looked at last week. The theme actually is essentially the same, but in this case, the tone is harsh, much harsher. Jesus is not pleased 
with the tolerance in the church. Now, he's not talking about the church's tolerance for people outside the church. He's not even talking about tolerance for people who stumble into sin. He's talking about tolerance for false teaching that leads people astray. And he's not pleased with what he sees. There's so much that's good in the church, but that kind of tolerance, not false tolerance, I mean, not, not true tolerance, but a, a kind of tolerance that's really, well, it's really an indifference to the truth. He, sa- he will not put up with that. And so he speaks of judgment, severe judgment. The Lord, the holy God says he is going to strike because of it. In fact, for this prophet, Jezebel, it appears to be too late. He's given her time to repent, and she has been unwilling to do it. And so judgment will fall upon her. Those who have been influenced by her, the ones that are said to have committed adultery with her, that means that they have embraced her teaching, her idolatry. See, in the Bible, often idolatry is depicted as spiritual adultery. And so those who followed her, he says, they too will be judged unless they repent. And so the same sin as what we saw at the church of Pergamum, this indulging in pagan worship, this this lowering the boundaries between the church and the unbelieving world, Or you might put it this way, this allowing the world to come flooding into the church, that is not acceptable. Jesus will not allow that. But here, as I say, here it gets very severe as he warns about judgment that's going to come. And as a matter of fact, God does judge his church. Where does judgment begin? It begins in the house of God. We can point out at the world all we want, but all you have to do is read the news and see that judgment begins in the house of the Lord. And we see how judgment has often fallen, I'm talking about in the United States, on churches and on church leaders. Judgment begins in the house of the Lord. God takes his broom to the church before he takes it to the world. He wants his church to be faithful, and then the church is able to bring a message of of salvation to the world. Now, all of this, as I say, is similar to what we saw in the church of Pergamum, which I think should give us pause, because if the Lord's sending two letters that essentially hit on the same issues, it makes you think maybe it's really important. But I'm not going to try to repeat what I talked about last week. Instead, I want to focus in on one particular concept that we find here. It's mentioned twice. It was mentioned in the letter to Pergamum as well. It's that issue of repentance. Jesus called Jezebel to repentance. All those who would follow her, he calls to repentance. The entire church is to repent of being too tolerant of this false teaching. And as a matter of fact, Repentance is an essential aspect of the gospel. Jesus, when he came preaching, his first message, according to Matthew, is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Certainly, he calls us to have faith, but the flip side of that coin we call faith is stamped repentance. Unless we repent, we cannot believe. 
And when we believe, it is repentant belief. We have to change. We have to turn around. Now, this was a tough sell in the first century. It was a tough sell because the people who were, who were embracing the way of the world didn't think they needed to repent. They didn't think they needed to repent because, well, they were essentially just saying yes to what everybody else was saying yes to. They managed to figure out why it was really okay as a Christian to live like the world, to believe like the world, to just sort of immerse yourself in the world. So they didn't think they needed to repent. Jezebel didn't think she needed to repent. So she was unwilling. And in the same way, most people today don't think they need to repent. In fact, the word repentance has almost, almost a comic sound to many people today. You know, it's, it's the sort of word that might elicit a smirk, like, oh, yeah, repent. It sounds so puritanical, so moralistic. And the reason that's the case is because of the worldliness we're dealing with. Now, we don't have literal pagan temples, well, at least not too many, that, that we might flock to and, and participate in. No, that's not the case. But, but there are different forms of worldliness, and in our form of worldliness, it goes something like this. We are wonderful, beautiful, essentially flawless people but we have been marred and harmed and injured by parents who didn't love us well enough, siblings who didn't treat us well enough, teachers who didn't guide us properly, churches that didn't affirm us as we needed to be affirmed. Society is just not what it ought to be, and that has so damaged us that we're not able to flourish as we would if if all was okay outside of us. See, everything in me is really good. It's all good. It's outside. That's where the problem is. The world needs to change. We need to fix the world so that people like me can feel good about themselves. That's how we think of the moral challenge facing the people. We simply have to become authentic. Now, here's the thing. From the Christian point of view, there's some truth here. Number one, we do want to be our authentic selves, our true selves. But Christians would understand that as the selves we were created to be. As the Bible teaches, we are created in the image of God. And yet, and yet through a fall, there is a twist in our nature, a turn in our nature. We have become sinners. So do we suffer from things outside us? Yes. But what those, how those things damage us is they, they impact us, the sinner, and we respond sinfully. So from the Christian point of view, it's not that, it's not that people don't suffer things and it's not that they're not harmed by, by what happens to them. It's not that. And it's not that people are just horrible through and through, we're creating the image of God. It's that to find our true self, the true self God has created, something has to be done with our sin. That is, our minds are turned the wrong way. 
Our hearts are turned the wrong way. We yearn for things we shouldn't yearn for. Or we yearn for the right things in the wrong way. Or with an imbalance. We love people, say, more than God. We love some behavior more than people. So we're all tangled up and we're all twisted up. Now, God sets us free from that. He heals what is wrong with us, but that can't happen unless we first repent. That's why Jesus said, when he's announcing the coming of the kingdom of heaven, he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There is, there is a chance for you, another chance. You can turn things around by the grace of God. You can have a different kind of life, a new life, but you have to repent. And so even though repentance today is a hard sell, it is what the gospel calls us to. And the fact is, those who might just brush off the idea of repentance are suffering for the lack of it. The truth is, repentance is empowering because it says, I can make a choice for God that can change everything. I don't have to live like I've lived for so long. There is hope for me. It's, it's empowering because I can now have confidence before God and before others if I repent. I can have self-respect. I may feel like nothing because of what I've done and how I've lived, but if I repent and receive forgiveness and, and God goes to work in my life and changes me from the inside out, when that happens, I start gaining self-respect back again. So repentance is a gift. So here, Thyatira needs to repent. We need to repent. That's always the message of the gospel. Repentance, we are called to turn. That's the Hebrew concept of repentance, by the way. The Hebrews thought of repentance as turning from sin to God. The Greeks thought of repentance as changing your mind or your point of view, to have your, have your perspective on life change to where the way you live changes. Now, those overlap. They're not contrary to one another. They're just different ways of describing the same phenomenon of repentance. But repentance never happens because we just are so wonderful and good and we decide to do it. It happens because the Holy Spirit convicts us. The Holy Spirit presses on our mind and our heart and our conscience, and we know something's wrong and we need to do something about it. And so we pray for that. We pray that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, would help us to understand what's wrong and that we might repent of it and then in repenting, find healing and change. The common mistake that we have is thinking that repentance isn't a turning and a change of mind, but instead an emotional, a strong emotional regret over what you've done. See, we think of repentance as, as something that is driven by this lament in our soul for what we've done. Sometimes it involves that, but not always. Not always. 
And if you think you, you, that's what repentance is all about, and it's that strong emotion of regret that inspires you to make change, you're in real trouble because the emotion isn't going to last. And if your repentance is dependent on emotion, well, your repentance is not going to last either. Now, the fact is, real repentance may be accompanied by emotion. That's appropriate, but it's not necessary to it. Instead, it's your conscience speaking to you, and it's your willingness then to, to surrender to the will of God, to turn away from what's wrong to God or to change your mind, to take a new view of it. Does everybody follow this far? All right, so here's the problem that we as Christians often face is there'll be times when we feel convicted. We know the Lord's dealing with us and we repent, or at least we think we do. And then after a week or a month or a year, we look at ourselves, we think, I'm right back where I started. My repentance didn't last. And then we think, well, it must not have been sincere. I, I wasn't sincere when I repented. And then we try to sincerely <laughs> repent. And we find it doesn't last again. But the truth of the matter is, you can't sincerely turn to God and sincerely ask him to help you, moved by deep emotion and being genuine in what you want, and yet be unable to sustain it if you don't understand that repentance is more than acting out of emotion. There are certain commitments it involves. That turning involves certain commitments. That changing of your mind involves certain commitments. So I want to take just a few minutes, the few minutes I've got left, to talk about how to make repentance stick. Have you ever had that problem? You, you repent and it doesn't last. Happens all the time. It's happened to me, happened to everybody here at one time or another. There are a few, few confessions I hear that are more common than that. Somebody saying, I have prayed and prayed and prayed to change and I, I feel like I have and then I slip right back to where I was before. This is particularly the case if somebody's dealing with addiction, but not only addiction. So how can we make it stick, which is what we want if we're truly repenting. The first thing we need to do is we need to burn our bridges. We need to cut off all possibility of escape. Let me read to you what it says in Romans 13. Paul says, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Pranea, do you see that Greek word there? Pranea means, yeah, don't think about it. That's a good translation. But there's the idea of planning involved. In other words, he's saying, don't make allowances for, don't, don't keep the way open to the flesh. In other words, you need to put that behind you. You need to burn some bridges you have a problem with drinking alcohol, you don't keep alcohol in the house. And if you've got a spouse who has trouble drinking alcohol, what are you doing allowing it to be in the house? You may not struggle with it, but they do. It needs to leave. Pills the same way. 
You have to get rid of it. You may have to go to the doctor that you've lied to in order to get that stream of prescriptions that you felt like you needed. You may need to say, listen, I can't help what I've done. I, you know, I've lied. I, I just don't need you to give me anything. And just put that out there. You may need to make yourself accountable. You don't like anybody asking where you are or what you're doing. Why not? Why not? See, that leaves a way for the flesh. If you are truly repenting and you want that repentance to stick, you need to recognize that you are vulnerable. Your good intentions, they may be good intentions, but you're not going to be able to stand up against the temptation if you haven't developed the strength over a long period of time, you're not going to be able to stand up against it. You need to burn your bridges. Here's, here's how you can think of it. If you had a friend struggling with your sin, what would you tell them to do to make it easier to walk the right way? What would you tell them to do? You'd probably have some real practical advice on how they can separate from the source of temptation. Do that. Do that. The second thing is become a worshiper. Now, this may not sound like it fits, but it really does. I want to read to you what Paul says in Ephesians. Chapter 5, he says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. In other words, you don't want to be under the influence of wine. You want to be under the influence of the Spirit. Then he says, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, this, this statement, be filled with the Spirit, it's a passive. It's a command, but it's passive. So you can't fill yourself, but you're expected to be filled. <laughs> that sounds impossible, but it's not because God is present. But you notice be filled with the Spirit. And then the NIV's translation hides it a little bit. You've got participles that follow. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking, singing and making music, giving thanks. In other words, associated with being filled with the Spirit is this whole worship experience. Commentaries differ. Is the being filled with the Spirit leading to the worship or is the worship bringing about the fullness of the Spirit? And surely the answer is both, right? That the Spirit works in our life and moves us to worship, but also when we open our heart and life to God and we begin to worship God, then God works in our life and we're filled with, with His power and His life and we're strengthened. We're strengthened in our resolve. See, that's the problem. You start off with this strong resolve to do right, and then it weakens over time. It's in worship that the resolve is renewed and the Spirit strengthens you. See, far too many of us practice what Dallas Willard called gospel is sin management. We think of the gospel as just trying to get rid of particular sins in our life that we don't like. But that's not right. Yes, God delivers us from particular sins, but folks, God wants us to have a relationship with him and be filled with the Spirit and walk as Christians who know him. And so 
Never let yourself get so focused on any particular sin that you lose your focus on God. Never, ever let it happen. Then thirdly, lean on others. If there's one area where I think in our churches, American churches, we, we fail more, any, more than any other, it's failing to lean on each other. We've been taught from the beginning that we've got to stand on our own two feet. And so we don't look to others to help us and encourage us. Let me read another passage, Hebrews 10. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. See, sharing our lives with one another, opening our lives to one another. I struggle and have somebody be close enough to me that they can encourage me, they can pray for me, they can, they can help me along the way. In some cases, that can even involve with a trusted person sharing some very personal things. James 5, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. I just saw this last week, an interesting news item about Max Lucado. Did anybody see that? He's got a new book out. You know what he talks about? He talks about how when everybody was calling him America's pastor and every book he wrote was a bestseller, he was abusing alcohol. And the Spirit convicted him of that, as you would imagine. And, you know, there are lots of... It comes from an alcoholic family. He says, if anybody's got an alcoholic gene, he did. He had no business touching alcohol at all. So here he is in this position. He's abusing alcohol. He took a huge risk. He went to the elders and confessed to them. And, you know, he took a risk because has he crossed a line that just isn't going to, you know, can't be recrossed? Is he going to lose his position? What they did was they stuck closer to him than they've, they've ever stuck before, and they prayed for him. That same week, he, he confessed it to his church on a Wednesday night. God restored, God worked, and he did it through other people. You may have to do the very same thing. You may have to do the very same thing. I'm over, but I need to make one last point. It's really important. That is, if you're going to make it stick, you've got to bank on grace. I don't have time to read some scripture that I was going to read and to elaborate quite like I wanted to, but here's the thing. It's the grace of God, says Paul, that teaches us to say no to ungodliness. And it's really easy when talking about repentance to start thinking of God as hard and harsh, legalistic. But the fact is God's goodness and God's grace leads us to repentance. It's God's grace that allows you to have hope. It's because God is gracious that, yes, you can go back and you can pray for the 10,000th time about the same sin. You can come back. Lord, I am still trusting you. You've got to bank on God's grace and seek him and trust him. And then you've got to know that you are his child standing in grace, even in the midst of the struggle. You are not going to be able to stand strong 
by beating yourself up. That's not going to help you one bit. That kind of religious abuse has never helped anybody. You will only stand strong under the grace of God. Don't, don't turn from God because you feel guilty. Open your life to him afresh and bank on the fact that his grace is real and powerful at all times for all his children in whatever they face. Go back and read the first verses of Romans 5. That's one of the passages I was going to read to you where Paul talks about how in faith we stand in grace. We stand in grace and under his grace. God is not against you, and he's not angry. Come back and seek his help. He'll help you. He is your father. Don't let yourself turn away from him in guilt. Open yourself wide up. Count on it. Count on his goodness. Amen. Let me lead us in prayer. And as we pray, if you have not met Christ as your Savior, you may think you are not the type. You are too far gone. The answer is you are not too far gone. The grace of God can change your life this morning. Heavenly Father, would you change each of us? Would you help us to understand your grace more deeply and more profoundly? Would you give us the grace to repent, Lord, to change our ways and to to stick with that commitment, Lord, by doing what, what you've enabled us to do? Guide us in that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.